0: Have you ever heard of something called the agony column? Like, even if you've never heard of it, and by the way, it's from the Victorian era, so no worries if you haven't, it is actually having an impact today. It's all about how we communicate in public. Now, I could describe all of this to you, but you know what, we're going to let our guest do that, actually. Natalie Cook joins us now, a professor of English literature at McGill University. Good morning. Good morning. What was an agony column? Well, essentially, an
1: agony column was a personal ad. Um, But one of the most intriguing things was it it was featured on the front page of the newspaper. So that along with births and deaths and shipping news, um, readers of the newspaper felt that it was one of the most important things to follow. And that was until 1966.
0: Really? And so you could see these, was it very personal? Like, what was the attraction there?
1: It was absolutely personal. So, Today, think about encrypted messages. We send personal messages through WhatsApp because we trust they're encrypted. But in the newspaper, they were on the very front page. And so in some cases, they were things like, you know, missing dog or the person with the red feather on the train yesterday, you know, contact me. But in some cases, they were actually written in code and cipher so that there could be incredibly personal messages written in plain sight.
0: And so were people like reading this on the front page of the newspaper trying to figure out what the codes meant?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, there are images in the Victorian period of individuals scouring the front page and following it, including Queen Victoria. So, for example, um, there was a wonderful uh, correspondence between P.O. Nono and Pope Jean in 1862, and it was about an elopement And actually, unfortunately, Pope Jean's father figured out the the code and the cipher and put paid to the elopement, for example.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay, So why is this still so interesting to us today? Because what kind of influence is it having? Well, I mean,
1: the obvious influence is that the kind of um, narrative that develops through ads and correspondence going back and forth creates a wonderful plot line. So in 1868, the Norfolk News called these ads a romance in a nutshell, right? So one of the things we see in contemporary films, including remakes of Sherlock Holmes and Enola Holmes, is that these ads actually further the plot. They allow us to see how individuals are corresponding between, to one another, and we're seeing a kind of narrative developing between these very succinct little messages.
0: So it's kind of like how we love puzzles, right? We love to solve puzzles in a very communal way.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So it's a version of puzzles and it's imagine um, stories written in Twitter, right? We follow Twitter um, but imagine that happening on the front page of your daily newspaper so that you can see these particular star- stories evolving and you can feel so proud of yourself if you can actually decode some of these puzzles. There were people who could do it. The the real version of Sherlock Holmes, a man called Ignatius Pilati, was notorious for solving these puzzles to the detriment of the poor people who went to a lot of trouble trying to encode them so as to have Um, communications that were not decipherable.
0: So uh, this really forms the basis, Natalie, of so much of what we see today, isn't it? Like, we love a good mystery, we love to solve these things, and we consume it, whether it's on TV or read books or, you know, in the newspaper. And so this is kind of where it all got started from.
1: Exactly. And so in other words, you know, we think about encryption today as something that's digital, and involves our digital platforms. Here is the early version of encryption, and it's analog. That is, we can actually see it in plain sight. And it's pretty easy now. In the last decade or so, we've had newspapers digitized. So really, for the first time in our decade, we're able to go back and see decades of newspapers and front pages and get a sense of what these felt like. So imagine... Um, If you were out in the Arctic and you couldn't communicate to your family because you weren't going to be able to send letters home, how could you do it? You would place an ad in the newspaper because you could be sure that your family would read the front page of the newspaper. And if you wanted to be very secretive about how you were doing on your mission up north, let's say you were looking for the Lost Franklin Expedition, as the Shackletons were then you could encode it and your family and, and your colleagues would have a chance to see how you were doing on your quest.
0: So how similar do you think social media is? Like, obviously, we still like the public messages, but we're not encrypting very many of those these days.
1: You know what? We are in a way. Um, so, you know, think about social media where we are, we are publishing messages on our personal platforms. But also think about how many of those accounts don't really belong to the individuals, who um, whose name is attached to them, and also imagine that we are putting our best selves forward in those communications. So there is there's an element of a kind of a veil of fiction that's occurring in those so- social media correspondences, and we're definitely encrypting. You know, some some of the platforms we use, we prefer Signal, for example, to. You know, we expect Twitter to have a certain kind of um, uh, level of mediation. There's been huge controversy about it,
0: right? But I guess also what I'm thinking is that we still expect or, or or think there are hidden messages in in things that are right there in plain sight. And is this, do you think, part of that? Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, and part of that isn't isn't part of that human nature. I mean. There's been um, an increased interest in mystery and crime and detection recently in an era where we thought novels would be dead. Um, So there's a a human curiosity for those kinds of secrets. And that's one of the things we're reading for.
0: And yet we don't remember, do we, Natalie, that perhaps this is the origin of that or this really helped it along, brought it into kind of more mainstream, widespread culture? No,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. When people ask me what I'm up to, I talk about looking at the agonies or the early personal columns, and they think it's very obscure, it's niche, it's only part of history, but it's actually the origin story of much of our contemporary digital communication.
0: This is so fascinating. We love a good twist, too, I think, and that, right? Like, I love a book or a movie or anything that has a a surprise twist in it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, how much fun is it to take a look at some of these early uh, um, personal ads, especially if they have um, codes on them that aren't even plain English, you know, in ciphers, and to, to work out the different ways of solving those mysteries.
0: That is so true. Listen, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to talk to you, Simon. Thank you. I have really learned something this morning. That's Natalie Cook, who's a professor of English literature at McGill University, and she studies something called the agony column, which was very popular in 19th century English newspapers. Now, you may, may have heard about this. Like, remember, there used to be advice columns and agony, all that kind of stuff. Well, this is where it started from. But the influence of that today on the fact that we love to solve puzzles or we love mysteries or, you know, we love to decode things, all of that really became widespread with these agony columns. Love it.